Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I have another podcast out there, From John to Justin, and it releases every single Friday. I'm looking at every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, after looking at every election in Canadian history, and every Prime Minister in Canadian history. I do all these podcasts full-time, the writing, the research, everything, so every dollar you give helps keep it all going, and I truly do appreciate it. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok at bairdo37. And if you'd like to put an ad in the podcast, well, let me know. I'm willing to advertise whatever you got going on, and I have very competitive rates. And next week... I have my 500th episode of Canadian History X, and I just want to say thank you to everybody who's enjoyed the podcast, listened through the years, and supported it. The community of Hillcrest, located near the Crow's Nest Pass of Alberta, was founded and fueled by coal. Charles Plummer Hill was a coal prospector who came north and created the Hillcrest Coal and Coke Company on January 31, 1905, with construction beginning on the community and mines starting that same year. Hill would work the mine on a small scale for seven years before he sold it to several interests, including the Canadian Pacific Railway. The new mine owners were men from Montreal, and it was estimated that the mine was pulling out 1,200 to 1,300 tons of coal per day. Seeing the potential for the coal mines of the area, the Canadian Pacific Railway soon built a spur line towards the new Hillcrest mine. Before long, hundreds of people started to migrate to the area, and by 1907, there was 1,000 people living in Hillcrest. The workers in the mine enjoyed steady employment, and many considered the mine to be one of the safest in the entire region. Perhaps that was the case for a few years, but everything would change on June 19, 1914 at 9.30am. Two and a half hours earlier on that day, the mine had started operations and 237 miners streamed into the mine, ready for another day of work beneath the ground. Around that time, William Adkin, the fire boss, completed his mine inspection and posted a notice stating there were low levels of methane gas and some cave-ins at various parts of the mine. Suddenly, an explosion tore through the tunnels up the slopes and out the entrance of the mine. With the explosions consuming all of the oxygen, carbon dioxide gas called black damp or after damp would then rise to fatal levels. Levels of 13% was enough to cause a person to lose consciousness, and after the explosion, it was believed the carbon dioxide levels were as high as 50%, more than enough to kill everyone in the mine. The explosion was large enough that it was reported the concrete building located 20 feet from the mouth of the mine had its roof blown clean off. 
As soon as the explosion happened, John Brown, who was the general manager and above ground, ran to the fan room to reverse the suction of air, which would push oxygen into the mine in the hopes that it would save miners who were trapped underneath. The action likely saved dozens of lives near the mouth of the mine. Rescue attempts were attempted, but the destruction of the entrance caused complications. By 11.30 a.m., about 40 men had escaped from the mine, and most were given immediate treatment with early forms of respirators and oxygen. Smoke from the fires underground billowed into the air, and coal cars began to come to the surface with charred, disfigured, and suffocated bodies of miners. Police were on hand to control the crowd as loved ones surged forward to see if they had lost a relative or friend in the disaster. Even some people on the surface were killed, including two rope riders and Sam Charlton, another fire boss who was preparing to lay charges at Old Level Mine 1. The Calgary Herald would report, quote, The scenes around the mine tell a terrible tale of the havoc wrought at the fearful force of the explosion. It is only with the greatest difficulty the gangs of rescuers, armed as they are with the latest scientific devices for saving life in such cases, can make any headway. Men, horses, timber, and rails and wagons are jumbled in a chaotic mass, and the path is strewn at every step with the debris, so that only those men who are fortunate enough to have been working near the pit mouth have any chance of being brought out alive. End quote. Men who had mining experience would state that there was no way anyone working in the innermost pit of the mine could have come out alive. Rescue trains were immediately dispatched from Calgary, Lethbridge, and Fernie, with another special train coming in from Blairmore. Six gangs of men were working using pole motors and wearing special gear to protect them from the dangerous fumes to clear the mine entrance and rescue anyone they could. George Vickers would state, quote, The mine was still heavily impregnated with gas, and it was with difficulty that the rescuers worked their way to places where men had been working. Three of the rescuing party were overcome by gas and had to be carried out. When we reached the death trap, we saw bodies strewn in every direction and lying in every conceivable position. End quote. Vickers would state that one man was found in a kneeling position with the pick in his hand ready to strike. Most of the bodies were rigid in their place, and the legs and arms had to be broken to get them to what was called, quote, a presentable condition, end quote. As bodies came to the surface, they were taken to the wash house where they were cleaned and identified if possible. They were then taken to the miners' hall in the village, 800 feet below the main slopes. And he was one of the men that brought the miners out and washed them and had them presentable for viewing, for identification. At the hall was a sad state of affairs, full of people who were identifying their loved ones. The Winnipeg Tribune would state, quote, Wives and children wept together and even strong men broke down and bowed their heads to the inevitable. Widows were led away from the last fond gaze of all that is mortal of their husbands, and the moist eyes of onlookers were not a few. It was not infrequent that the lids of caskets were opened and kisses imprinted on the cold lips of loved ones. End quote. Often, identification was not easy due to the state of the bodies. The Saskatoon Daily Star would report, quote, Many of the bodies were almost unrecognizable. Arms were torn out and one man's head was completely blown off, while nearly everybody was charred to a crisp. End quote. It was stated that not a man who did not escape the mine within the first five minutes lived. The directors of the mine would release a statement saying, quote, In planning our mine, we constructed two distinct entries about a half mile apart, which are connected underground, and great precaution was always been taken in the ventilating of the mine. Our engineer's weekly report just received states the ventilation was good in all parts. We are at an utter loss to understand how such a tremendous catastrophe could have happened. End quote. 
The youngest person to die in the explosion was Alexander Petrie, who was only 17. His family would deal with a great deal of tragedy that day as Alexander's two brothers also lost their lives. Alexander had only worked in the mine for three weeks, and as miners were paid monthly, he had not even received his first paycheck when he died. Was Robert, he would, was killed. He had only worked there two or three weeks, and they, they paid by the month, so he didn't get a paycheck before he was killed. And uh, I think I would have been very proud to have known them. Charles Elick had survived the Frank Slide in 1903 when part of Turtle Mountain collapsed and fell in the town of Frank, killing 100 people. He had been trapped in the mine when the collapse happened, but he and his co-workers dug themselves out after 13 hours. He then moved to Hillcrest with his family, but unfortunately he would not survive a second mine disaster. The day after he died in the mine disaster at Hillcrest, his wife Julia gave birth to their son. Julia was left to raise five children on her own in a time before social welfare programs existed. Edgar Johnson had lost his wife to a heart attack in 1912, leaving him to raise five children alone. He would take his three youngest children east to be cared for by relatives, while he planned to go back to Hillcrest to work with his sons, Alfred and William. Unfortunately, he was kicked in the stomach by a horse and died from complications. A few months later, his son Alfred married Florence, the daughter of a coal miner. On the day of the disaster, Alfred and William went underground and would be killed in the explosion. For Florence, the disaster was heartbreaking, as she would lose not only her husband and brother-in-law, but Alfred's best man at the wedding, her own father, and many friends and neighbors. Dan Cullingham was not supposed to even work until the afternoon, but he filled in for his friend J.D. Rumminson, who was sick, and he would lose his life in the process. Tom Corkill had just bought a farm near Lethbridge, and he planned for his trip into the mine to be his last ever journey underground. As it turned out, this was tragically the case for him. Some people turned out to be very lucky, William Dodd decided that since the mine had been closed the previous two days and since it was Friday, he was not going to go to work. That decision would save his life. H. Yeadon would survive the disaster and he would state, quote, I can remember hearing the explosion and that is about all I know, with the exception of dropping down to the floor of the drift near some water. Next thing I knew after that was when I was told the physicians had been using a pull motor on me for 45 minutes. They said they feared I would never come to, but I am here to tell the tale. End quote. As soon as Yeadon was brought back to consciousness, he immediately got down to working to rescue other miners, staying at the site until 2 a.m. He would add, quote, You know it must be an easy death to be suffocated with gas, for I felt no pain and would never have known the difference had I not been brought to. I am glad to know the poor fellows down there suffered no pain. End quote. I don't know much, but I don't think it would have been a painless death, unfortunately. William Guthrow was rushing with others to the mouth of the mine when he suddenly found his mining boot had been caught in the mining rail track. He quickly took out his pocket knife and cut his boot off his foot, and then proceeded to safety wearing just one boot. Malcolm Link and Charles Jones were in the number 15 chute when they heard what they thought was a cannon. They dropped to their hands and knees and crawled to safety. Arnold Valley was another person who survived the blast, and he would say, quote, I just heard the report and then I rushed to safety. There were a number of others around me, and I can remember stumbling over a dead horse on the way out. End quote. Steve Belopotsky was supposed to be working that morning shift, but he switched with a friend who wanted to meet his wife at the train station in the afternoon. The decision proved tragic for his friend and his friend's wife, but it would save his life. 
Joe Atkinson was the first man to be rescued from the mine unconscious after the explosion, and he would finally wake up three hours later. Afterwards, he would state, quote, I was working some distance in slant number two and did not hear the report of the explosion. It was just as if I had suddenly gone deaf, as if a two-inch nail had been driven in my ears. That is how it felt. I was bowled over by the shock and the scramble to my feet. Almost instantly, black smoke began to come around the slant. End quote. Peter Duget was working 50 feet from the entrance when he felt the explosion and would walk through the smoke falling over two dead horses and three dead men before he reached the open air. Of the 237 men who went down into the mine that day, only 48 came out. It remains the worst mining disaster in Canadian history. The death of 189 people amounted to 20% of the population of the town and half of the population of its mine workforce. The disaster left 90 women widowed and 250 children lost their fathers. On one street alone, there were now 13 widows. All the bodies have been collected from the mine within a week, except for two. One was found in July. The last body was never found. Many of those who died were buried in two mass graves at Hillcrest Cemetery. The Winnipeg Tribune would describe the funeral as one of the saddest in Canadian history, adding, quote, the funeral was an impressive one, all in the more on account of the number of internments, and the little town of Hillcrest for many a day will date its time from this tragic Sunday. End quote. Of the victims, 43 were from Austria, 30 were Ukrainian immigrants, including 6 from the same village in the Ukraine. Of those who died, only 17 were born in Canada, with only 2 from Alberta, and the rest were all immigrants who had come to the country looking for a better life. For many miners from Austria, their families received no compensation until peace was declared between Austria and Great Britain, which would not come until November 11, 1918. The disaster would make worldwide news before it faded from the front pages as the world moved towards the First World War. King George V would give a brief message about the disaster. He stated, quote, I am grieved to hear through the press of the terrible disaster at Hillcrest Coal Mine, by which it is feared hundreds have lost their lives. Please express my deepest sympathy with the sufferers and also with the families of those who have perished. End quote. Prime Minister Robert Borden would also express sympathy for the lives lost in the disaster and pledged financial assistance for those left behind. The government would announce on June 23rd that $50,000 was being provided for a Hillcrest Mine Relief Fund, amounting to about $1.2 million today. The Alberta government would pledge $20,000, while Alberta Premier Clifford Sifton gave $500. Several other prominent individuals, including Timothy Eaton, would donate between $150 and $1,000. The City of Calgary gave $2,500, and the City of Lethbridge pledged $2,000. In all, by July 6, $82,875 have been raised, amounting to nearly $2 million today. The government would also send out an expert to determine the cause of the mine disaster. The world was hungry for news of the disaster as well, leading to some people showing images of the devastation in movie theaters across Canada. On June 23rd, only days after the explosion, one person was putting on a Hillcrest mine disaster showing at the Empress Theatre in Calgary with an advertisement that stated, quote, this is positively no fake, but genuine scenes of the world's most terrible mining catastrophe taken on the spot by the Empress Theatre cameraman. End quote. On July 6, mining operations would start up again, albeit on a small scale at Hillcrest. The disaster had happened on payday, and the checks of the miners went into a trust fund, 
leaving the widows who had to raise children alone without money to live on or feed their children. Relief programs would be initiated around Canada and many people would begin to donate money. Initiatives would be launched by several newspapers and even the mayor of nearby Lethbridge would come to Hillcrest with a large order of groceries and flour to help families out. In order to get any compensation from the mining company, families of victims were forced to sue and only some received money. It would not be until February of 1915 that it was announced, with several newspapers calling it a generous agreement, that widows and orphans at Hillcrest would get $250,000 collectively. Most only received $1,800 per victim, about $43,000 today, and it took as much as a year to get the money. A rural commission was launched quickly to determine the cause of the disaster, along with a police investigation and coroner's inquest. What was found was that there had been a methane gas explosion, which caused a flare-up of coal dust, which then resulted in a coal dust explosion. Some reported a third explosion as well. Even today, though, it is not known what ignited the methane gas. It could have been any number of things, including a rock fall, a lamp flare, an electrical cable short, or even somebody disobeying the rules and lighting a cigarette. One mine pit boss would state that he believed the first explosion was caused by gunpowder used in blasting, the second explosion was then set off by the first explosion, followed by the third explosion. The disaster would prompt improvements in the province to workers' compensation and mine safety legislation. One such change was that every mine had to have its own rescue team trained and ready with self-contained breathing apparatus to get in right away to begin rescuing miners. The mine would suffer another explosion in 1926 when two miners died. By 1939, the mine had closed down and Hillcrest experienced a downturn in its economy. A monument was placed at the site to honour the victims. In 1990, James Keelahan recorded the song Hillcrest Mine, and we're going to play part of that song as we close out the episode. Down in the mines of the crows dust past Some men that die in labor Sweating coal from the womb of the pit It's fell of a life they savor And in that mine, young man, you'll find The wealth of broken dreams As long and as dark and as black And as white as the coal and ale crest seen Say you don't go Say you don't go down in the hill crest mine And they say you don't go Say you don't go down mine cause it's one short step you might leave this world behind and they say don't go say don't go down and they'll press mine well i've heard it whispered in the light of dawn that mountain sometimes moves that falls over the morning shift and you know what you're gonna lose don't go, my son, where the deep coal runs on your back on the mine on the hill. Cause if the dust in the dark and the gas don't get you, then the goon for the bosses will say you don't go. Say you don't go down in the hill crust mine and they say you don't go. Say you don't go down in the hill crust mine. Cause it's one short step. You might leave this world behind and they say you don't go, say you don't go down. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the Hillcrest Mine Disaster. Next week, I'm looking at the life of Chief Dan George. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, 
and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from CBC, Calgary Herald, Alberta Cultural and Tourism, Wikipedia, Hillcrest Mine Disaster, Coal Miners Memorial, Calgary Herald, and the Montreal Gazette. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.